Open your Bibles this morning to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, and so for the next two weeks, this week and the next two weeks, we'll be in Leviticus 18 to 20 in, in a topical series, but we will stay in this text, and so you can read through these three chapters and read through the book of Leviticus a couple times in the next few weeks, and, and uh, that's the place where most Christians in their Bible reading challenge end up stopping about Leviticus. So some of you have read Genesis and Exodus 37 times, and three or four chapters in Leviticus, a couple, you know, 37 times, and that's kind of where you died. You died in Leviticus. Um, but uh, again, this just gives me an opportunity to encourage you to continue in the Bible reading challenge. Uh, one week, that's where most people actually probably give up. Week two is kind of where we'll lose most of you. So don't stop now. You started, you're persevering, continue on. If you make it six weeks, you have a good shot of finishing the whole year. Take six weeks to develop a good habit and uh, two to three weeks to lose it. Once you have it developed, it takes about one or two days to lose it when you don't have it developed. All right, so stay with it daily and keep pressing on in your desire to know the Word of God. The Word of God shows us Christ, and Christ is life. Uh, Christ is our life. And, and here's the thing. He, he is more than just eternal life. I love the song we sang. I love it. Uh, he, he has the words of eternal life, but he has the words of life for right now. You want to live a life of blessing, a life of, of joy, a life of fulfillment, a life of satisfaction, you find that in Christ and in his words. And that is, is not saying that you will find a life of ease and comfort and simplicity and uh, all those things. No, you will find blessing and fulfillment and satisfaction along with persecution, sorrow, suffering, great misery, and great opportunity to serve people in great misery. All right, so now, now if you don't find Christ, you will have all those other things anyway. You won't have persecution, but you will have hardships, and you will have challenges, you will have difficulties, and you will have grief, and you will have all the misery of life in a fallen world, but you'll have it without Christ. And so you're going to have it one way or the other, but you can have it with Christ, you can have it without Christ, and as we know, so many of us, having it with Christ uh, makes all the difference. And so it's a wonderful thing. So we're in Leviticus 18, that was just, that was just bonus, all right? So if you're using a Bible provided, it's uh, page 123. It's been a long time since we've opened those Bibles to as early in the book. Usually we're in the New Testament many times, but we are in Leviticus. What is the foundation for our civil law? How is any nation to determine right and wrong, good and evil, legal and illegal? And let me make a note here. The word is illegal, not illegal, okay? I just want to say that for my own sake. Um, it's illegal, just read it, it's illegal, not illegal, and hopefully that will bother you the rest of your life every time someone mispronounces it. <laughs> I'll do that more for Tracy than anybody. It drives me crazy. How does a nation determine that? And what part does religion play in that process? And then as Christians, what should our response be to the legalization of evil or the criminalization of good in our nation? And what laws should we as Christians be seeking to implement in our civil government and why? Over the next two weeks, we'll be dealing with two different Sundays. Uh, next week will be um, Biblical Sexuality Sunday that started last, week, last year due to the passing of Bill C-4 in the Canadian legislature or parliament, whatever they, they call it way up north. Uh, and, and that was a criminalization of the ability to give biblical counsel to people struggling with sexual sin. They criminalized biblical counsel 
and biblical teaching on sexual sin. Now, our government this year decided to try to follow in their footsteps with the so-called, what's it called, uh, Respect for Marriage Act. But I will never call it that, now that I just said that, I will continue to call it the Disrespect for Marriage Act. And so, next week we'll be dealing with Biblical Sexuality Sunday, and then the following Sunday will be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that we've been celebrating at this church and many churches have done for almost 50 years. And just because Roe v. Wade was overturned, praise the Lord, doesn't mean our fight is over. And all of us know that based upon what happened in the state of Michigan just in our last voting session with Proposition 3. So in the state of Michigan, we have gone from the frying pan into the fire when it comes to the sanctity of human life. And so we're going to be preaching on those things the next two, next two Sundays, and I wanted to do that from Leviticus. And I thought to do that well from Leviticus, I needed to give you about three hours of preparation. I'll try to cram that down into one hour or less, Lord willing. But here's the point. The point is that this next Sunday, there will be many good churches that will preach on biblical sexuality. There will also be more churches that will preach on sanctity of human life. And yet, even in many of those good churches preaching the good news and the truth of the Word of God, they will be missing a key component. They will be missing the key component of if those laws were to be overturned, what laws should be there? And why as Christians do we preach against these evil laws and then shy away from promoting the biblical law of the Bible as the law to replace it? This is very important because I'm not preaching to the world out there today. I'm not preaching to unbelievers. I'm preaching to the church of Jesus Christ and strong believers who hate the sin that is being promoted in our culture, who want to take a stand against it, who vote against it, who preach against it, who talk against it. And then when the time comes for us to think about what the laws should be and how they should reflect, we'll all of a sudden turn away from the God of the Bible, turn away from Scripture, turn away from religion, and seek to find some sort of democratic solution that flows from the heart of sinful men to do those things. And if we do not understand the foundation for all righteous law and how that should infect, infect and affect our nation, we will never have anything of righteousness, of, of lasting solidity and foundation to replace it when our nation turns from the brink. Now, our nation will turn from the brink in one of two ways, after years, decades, maybe millennium of great judgment from God, or through revival. But when that happens, we need to have a, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ prepared to give the way forward. It's one thing to preach against the evils of our nation and then to have no solution and no answer to what to do in its place. That's our problem. We do not understand the foundation of law. We do not understand the scripture and how they apply to today, including and especially the old covenant and the law of the old covenant. So, when we read verses like Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We all say amen, and we pray against what's happening in our nation. And then when someone says, okay, what should we do instead? We say, well, we should go back to the laws of the land in the 1950s or the 1920s or the 1860s. We should go back to something else in our nation's history because in our nation's history, we have the democracy of a people who follow a constitution, and those people had developed a great set of laws that work so well. But notice what flowed out of the thinking of that very nation, with that very constitution, with those very laws, what has shown up in our culture today. And so many people who are now turning away from the insanity, the ridiculous perversity of our nation today and, and what's going on, they want to go back 
20 years ago. They want to go back 40 years ago. They want to go back 50 years ago. They want to find a time when it was more sane. But if we buy into that theory, what we will do is we will begin what the judges did in the book of Judges. We'll begin a cycle where we go back and we find a little bit of healing. We will heal the wound lightly. We'll put a little salve on our cancer. And then in 50 years, we'll be right back here again or in much shorter time. So if we are going to see revival in our nation or in 500 years, the rebirth of a new civilization in this country, we must be prepared to teach our children, our grandchildren, our great-great-great-grandchildren how to do that according to the Scripture. So you got to know it. So it's hard. So who are we to say that homosexuality and transgenderism are sinful, wicked, and should be criminalized? Who are we to say that terminating a pregnancy, I put that in quotes, is murder and should be punished by the death penalty. The sad fact is that most evangelical Christians in America would not say those things. Most evangelical Christians would not say that homosexuality, transgenderism, and the murder of children in the womb should be criminalized, and if it is criminalized, that some of those things should not be punished by the biblical punishment of the death penalty. They would not say that. They would back away from following the scriptural ways and the scriptural commands and the scriptural law Because they think that man knows better. Here's the challenge for us. We say that homosexuality is a sin. We think that the laws that are promoting that and the, therefore, the Obergefell decision in 2015 where it legalized what is called as same-sex marriage, we think those things should not be. Why not? When someone says love is love and you say, no, that's not right, why not? When we say those things are wrong and they shouldn't be in law, are we saying that people who seek to live in same-sex homosexual relationships should have those criminalized? Should there be penalties for a mother who has an abortion, a 15-year-old girl who who kills her baby in the womb? Should she be killed by the death penalty? Should she face the penalties of death in that case? And we back away from the law of God on these things because we say, no, the law of God, that's, that's pretty harsh. In fact, that's, that's, that's so religious and that's, we need to understand. These are the challenges that we face. So I'm going to skip some of my things here that I had on my, my notes because this, I really want to focus in on how Christians should view the way that Christians should be doing things if we were in charge. And you say, well, we're not in charge. Well, if we ever were in charge, what would we do? And if you believe, as I do, that the United States of America was founded by primarily Christians and Christian men and Christian government who sought to follow the Word of God, Old and New Testament, and applying themselves to the Constitution, to their laws, that if we are ever to recover anything from the past, we will recover that foundation and seek to do a better job than they did in 1776 and 1786 or whatever it is. We will do better, which means we need to know better. How do we do that? Well, I wish I could solve all that in in one sermon, and I won't solve it in three sermons, and I won't solve it in probably the rest of my life in 300 sermons, but we will do our best to begin to build a framework. So before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Lord, open our eyes to see, help us to understand, help us to wrestle with these truths. It is hard. We have a worldview. We have an old understanding. We've been taught things by good men for decades. We've been taught things that are not quite accurate and have not been applied accurately, and so, Lord, we need your help. And I pray that you'll show us as we sing, show us Christ and show us the truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
I'm just going to read the first section. We're going to be jumping around, and I'll read a part of it, and then we'll read some more later. I'll start in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. Follow along in your Bible. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall, not, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I want you to recognize God's word here, and I want you to recognize every time all caps L-O-R-D is found in your translation, the word is Yahweh. So some of you are using the Legacy Standard Bible maybe this morning, and it would be Yahweh in that. That is the name of God, Yahweh. The name of the Lord in the Old Testament. So the Lord is Yahweh. This is Israel's God. Their God has a name. His name is Yahweh. Of course, he is the Lord, which means he's in charge of all things. But his name is Yahweh. And Yahweh in the New Testament is best exemplified in Christ. Christ is Yahweh. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Yahweh, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are what we're talking about here. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of Israel and the God of the church. What we're going to say in the next three weeks is this, that Iron, Iron Age morality is still relevant today. Iron Age morality is still relevant today, and I say more than relevant, it is the foundation for anything we would say is legal and illegal. That's what I believe. So where do we find ourselves in Leviticus? Leviticus begins with the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. The tabernacle had just been completed, and the glory of the Lord had filled it. And Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and he said to him. So we have the tabernacle, we have the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, and Yahweh calls out to Moses and speaks to him, and what does he tell him? He tells him the law. And then in Leviticus, we have that law laid out. God had already given the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, but now he begins to give more laws, beginning with what we refer to as the ceremonial law. So in chapters 1 through 7, God tells Moses how the people are to worship him in the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. God cares how he is worshipped, and the specifics are vital. So you have seven chapters on the specifics, and then you get to chapter 10, and what do you find out is God really, really cares, because when Nadab and Abihu worship not according to the ways that God had commanded them, what does God do? He strikes them dead. So if you think the ceremonial law was unimportant, Talk to Nadab and Abihu about that. Now, the ceremonial law continues in chapter 11, and in that, those chapters, we find dietary laws, and these laws were to set Israel apart from the other nations. Israel was to be different and set apart as holy, sanctified, by what they ate. Now, what did Christ do in the New Testament? He set aside the laws of what we ate, and so he tells us that we don't have to follow that part of the, of the ceremonial law and the dietary restrictions in the New Covenant. He told us that. We can see it. Therefore, we don't follow those. But those are a part of the ceremonial law. And then starting in chapter 12, going through 15, we have a section of judicial laws that would best described as health codes. Leviticus 12 through 15 are the health codes for the nations. They are judicial laws about how they are to enact health codes. Now, if we as a church... Or if we as a nation, I should say it that way, if we as a nation or we as a people had followed those principles in the health codes, we would have saved ourselves so much hardship through the COVID pandemic. Read it and understand it. 
And the leadership at this church turned to those codes in Leviticus 12 through 15 as our guide for how we responded to the government recommendations once we recognized that we had done wrong and repented of closing down for six weeks. We went to the Word of God and we said, what does the Word of God say about infection and say about disease and say about the spreading and transmission of those things? Leviticus 12 through 15 tells you what to do. And if we would have followed that and our nation would have followed that, we would find ourselves in a place unlike we can imagine today. So even though it's judicial law, and it's not moral law in 12 through 15, following it would have been the right thing to do, and I still believe it is the right thing to do. Now then chapter 16 through 17 give more ceremonial laws, and that brings us to our section 18 to 20. So there's a mixing of ceremonial and judicial laws through the first 17 chapters of Leviticus. In 18 to 20, we come to what is mainly judicial law again. And when I say the word judicial law, I am saying this. Judicial law is the specific explanation and application of the moral law of the Ten Commandments in detail. Judicial law is the specific explanation and application of the moral law of the Ten Commandments in detail. Now, I've used three terms, ceremonial law, judicial law, and also we will talk about moral law. The distinctions there are covered in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19. You can find that free online, London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19, of the law of God. And there, I think there's like seven paragraphs on it. What we have to understand is it's laid out so clearly in that confession, that's our church confession for our elders and leaders, is that the first law of God written on the heart of man and delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is found in the Ten Commandments, is God's moral law. Besides the moral law, God gave the people of Israel ceremonial law as to how they were to worship him under the old covenant. All of those ceremonial laws were types and shadows and reflections of the Christ to come and were completely fulfilled and satisfied in Christ and in him. Therefore, the dietary restrictions as a part of the ceremonial law are done away with, as well as the sacrificial system because Christ, the one sacrifice, has come and paid for all of our sins once for all. The sacrificial system is done away with as well. The ceremonial law is set aside because Christ fulfilled it and, and, and has done away with it. But then he also gave judicial laws. Those did expire with the state of the people, Israel, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. And there's the, the important phrase for us. What, what do we do with the judicial law? The moral law continues from before creation to the end of, uh, of the earth and the end of time. And that's the moral law that is written on the heart of man. And that moral law continues. What do we do, though, and the ceremonial law has been set aside. What do we do with judicial law? What do we do with 18 through 20 and all the specific explanations and applications of moral law in law code? That's the question. That's the hard question. What do we do with those things? Well, the London Baptist says general equity is of moral use. And I think we can drive that home even more clearly. I believe the law code here is the only way of moving forward in a Christian society, in a society that wants to honor God and be blessed by God. And so the judicial law is also vital and important, though we don't have to follow it in every exact application because its complete uh, following was done away with with the nation of Israel. So, what do we do? Are we supposed to separate the moral law of the Ten Commandments from its judicial application? Is the moral law of the Old Testament to be the foundation for civil law? 
Is the judicial law to be the foundation for civil law? What does the Bible say? Let's find out. There we go. That was introduction. You ready? Now, if you need to go at any time, and I go long, and some of you know that by now, feel free. There's no, uh, there's no heartburn. If you've got to go and you've got plans and you can't stay the whole time, this will be on Facebook. You go back and listen to it 35 times at your leisure and enjoy it. The foundational principles for the law are found in Leviticus 18, 1 to 5. Foundational principles for law. And what we see in verses 1 through 5 is this. Every people group has a God or gods that they serve as their ultimate authority. Every people group has a God or gods that serve as their ultimate authority. Israel, Egypt, and the nations of Canaan. Three groups. All three groups have a God. Israel had one God. The other nations had gods that served as their ultimate authority. Those gods were in charge of the nations. Therefore, when God comes to Israel and says, I am the Lord your God, you shall not do as you did in Egypt, nor shall you do as they do in Canaan. You shall follow my statutes and my laws, not their statutes and their laws. Where do they get their laws and statutes? Where do they get their rules? They got the rules from their God, just like Israel got their laws from their God. Don't follow their rules, because in following their rules, you will follow their God. That's the point. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. Notice back in Exodus 20, verse 2, as he gives the Ten Commandments, the moral law, he comes to Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God. Notice, I'm going to give you law because I am your God. And I am your God because I bought you out of slavery. I redeemed you. He redeemed them by bringing them out of the house of slavery. He says, I purchased you, and you are mine. So he delivered them out of slavery and set them free. He redeemed them. Redemption in the Old Testament prefigures Christ's redemption of his people in the New Testament. Before he tells them how to live, before he gives them any laws, he tells them why he can. So they didn't say, why do you get to tell us what to do? You're not in charge of me. I'm all grown up. I'm an adult. No, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Israel, out of the house of Egypt. Therefore, so because he redeemed them, he has the authority to command them. He has the authority to give them laws. And yet, as he lays out his laws, he gave them a choice. He laid out his law, and then the people must respond. So in Exodus 24, verses 3, and then 7 and 8, excuse me, 7 and 8, you see the response. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Then he read, took the book of the covenant, notice it's a book of covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They cut a covenant, and they became God's covenant people by promise and by covenant, just as if a nation is formed out of a constitution. This is our law, this is our authority, this is our God, we are his people. There it is. It's by redemption. It's also by covenant. Notice, you declare, a people declares, a nation declares, any group of people declare their allegiance to their God through worship, service, and obedience. So if you don't worship, serve, or obey your professed God, then that professed God is not your God, and you have another one. So you say, the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. He has redeemed me. He has purchased me. 
Now, do you do what he says, or do you do your own thing? Do you follow the word of Christ and the law of Christ, or do you follow your own law or the law of another God? Whatever God you follow, that is your God, no matter what you say with your lips. So if you're going to have Yahweh as your God and his rules as your covenant, then you will do what? You'll keep it. And if you turn away from it, it's because you are following another God with another set of rules. So notice how that works. Every foundation for every nation and every people group is the foundation of religion, the foundation of a God who gives law to that nation, the laws and ways. Everyone has someone or something that is their ultimate authority. Everyone has something they worship, serve, and obey. Every people group under heaven for all time has religion at the foundation. And therefore, the God of the majority is the God of the people. The God of the majority is the God of the land. It's the God of the nation. Those terms are interchangeable because every people live on a land and form a nation. So these, these terms are interchangeable. These people or the land or the nation. Don't get caught up in which term is which because uh, Moses here under the direction of God is, is using those terms interchangeably. The people of Israel had no land, so they left Egypt and God gave them a land and that became their land. And they were a nation of people in a land, and those terms are interchangeable with how that impacts. Every people, whether they have a notifiable land or not, has a God, and every people with a notifiable or understandable land is a nation, and, those nation, and that nation has a God. Therefore, the people could be referred to by their land or referred to as a nation. So here's the point. Yahweh is Israel's God. Yahweh is not Egypt's God or Canaan's God. He said, I'm your God by redemption and by covenant. And when I'm your God, and notice Egypt and Canaan had their own gods. So therefore, as I already said, but I'll say it again, as your ultimate authority, your God determines your laws and religion determines civil law. I'll give it a chance there for you to fill in all the blanks there. As your ultimate authority, your God determines your laws. Therefore, notice this very carefully, religion determines civil law. There are far too many Christians today who think that there can be a secular place where religion doesn't touch, and out of that place, good secular people can come to a common sense understanding of morality, and they can determine good laws for themselves completely separate from any religion or any God or any influence. Leviticus 18 through 20, and all of the Bible actually, will tell you that is not possible it never happens. It will never happen. The God of a secular, irreligious, secular sphere, civil sphere, is the God of secular humanism, and that's the God of atheism, and that's the God of Darwin, and that's the God of Marx. That's the God who tries to do away with every other God and by saying, I'm not a God. It is a religion. It is run by a God, it's the God of secular humanism, and so that's what happens. It will determine your laws. So what we see here in 1 through 5 is that Yahweh's laws are different from the laws of the gods of Egypt and Canaan. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And in case you didn't get it the first time, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Mine, not theirs, because they're different, because we have different gods and different religions. So if you followed the laws of Egypt or Canaan, it would demonstrate that the gods of those lands were your gods. 
But since they are not your gods, you must not obey them, but obey the laws of your God, Yahweh. So worship and civil law go hand in hand. Civil law comes from the God or gods you worship. When you worship the God of Darwin and Marx, the God of atheism and secular humanism, you will end up with laws that flow out of that religion by those gods. That's the law that's being implemented in our nation today. It is religious. It's religious from top to bottom, and the claim that they are irreligious, therefore you can't bring your religion in, is the way they think they win, and so far they are winning. By saying we have no God, you've been forced or you've gone willingly along with just giving up your God in the civil sphere. But all the while they've been sneaking in their religion the entire time. And that's why when you seek to bring just any simple truth to anything like what's a man and what's a woman, and you go to the scripture, they say, oh, wait a second, you can't do that. That's religion, and we have no religion here. But notice, they worship. And the language that they use, they pray to their gods. They commit sacrifices to their gods. They lay their babies on the altar of Molech and worship to their gods, just as they did in the Old Testament, the gods of Canaan. And why will they fight so hard to sacrifice their children? Because that is sacrifice to their gods, even though they say they have no God. They do, whether they recognize it or not. We must, we must see this. We must see this. So the point is this, from beginning to end, it's not whether a God will direct your civil sphere, but which God. It's not whether, but which. A God will direct your civil sphere. Which one will it be? And Christians, when we finally wake up to this, across the board, we will find ourselves in a worse situation than this because most Christians still are fighting against this very simple truth. And you're going to struggle with it if you haven't thought about these things before. This goes against what we were taught. We were taught and the way we were raised and the way we've lived for the last 100 years in American Christianity for the most part across the board is we have secular and we have sacred. Here we do all our sacred religious stuff and over there we can have no God, no religion and it can all be good because mankind just can agree to common sense morality. Have you noticed where common sense morality has gotten us? Welcome, welcome to this religion. So Yahweh's promise. What does Yahweh promise at the end of verse 5? Following his laws leads to life. Following his laws leads to life, not eternal life. I want you to see this. This is not a promise of eternal life. It's a promise of life. Now, following Yahweh, following Christ, will lead to eternal life. Yes, absolutely. But leading them leads to life. The basic distinction in society today is those who hold a culture of life and those who hold to a culture of death. You can divide society into those who hold to a culture of life and those who hold to a culture of death. Yahweh brings life. The God of secular humanism brings death. Pay attention. Every part of it leads to death. Euthanasia. Abortion, death at both ends. Cutting off sexual body parts, death. No life, no reproduction, the end of society. Darwinism has no answer because life came from nowhere and goes nowhere. There's no God above, there's nothing below. All it is is get what you can while you can, which means power rules. The one with the most power wins, so get the biggest guns, kill the most people, and get the most you can out of life. That's the culture of death. And it rules and reigns in our nation today from top to bottom. The secular, humanist, rationalist, materialist is advocating a culture of death that is opposed to God's culture of life at every turn, 
every piece, every way. And their culture comes from the God they worship. And the God of secular humanism is the God of man. It's the God of man. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. Whoever has authority rules. Whatever you want, whatever feels good, whatever love you want, love is love, which means you get to determine what love is. Of course, they will not acknowledge the foolish insanity of that statement and what that means for how people live because they will then turn around and then they will legalize and criminalize whatever love they want to criminalize and they'll switch it at a moment's notice whenever they want to because they're in charge not only of our definitions but of our law and of the way that we view the entire thing. But it's a culture of death. Let me ask you, do you believe that to follow the way of Yahweh is to follow and to receive life? Do you believe that following the laws of Yahweh brings life? Do you believe that life is found in the obedience to the one true God? But what if you've been a rebel who've disobeyed God, who've turned away from his laws? What hope is there for you to have life? What happens when you say, if keeping Yahweh's rules brings life and I've been a rebel sinner who disobeyed these laws all the way through, what hope do I have Let me give you some really, really good news. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ came to redeem his people from slavery to sin. He is the true and better Moses. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, obeying the law in its totality, the Old Testament law in its totality, and fulfilling it completely. He's the true and better Adam. Jesus Christ died for his people on the cross willingly, laying down his life to win the victory over sin, death, and hell. He's the true and better David. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, forever demonstrating his victory for all to see. He is the true and better Jonah. True life is found only in him. True life is found in trusting in him. True life is found in following him. Have you found life in Jesus Christ? Without Christ, you will not have life. You will not have eternal life, and you will not have real blessed life now. But you find out by trying to keep the law of God in your own strength, the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is only by grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot keep God's law. Read Leviticus 18 to 20 and keep it. You can't. Read the Ten Commandments. Keep it. You can't. You have broken God's law. You have failed. You have sinned. You are a rebel sinner. You are an enemy of God. What's the good news? Is that you can become a child of God by trusting in Christ alone and have life, eternal life, sins forgiven, and true life now following the ways of Christ in this life. You can follow his ways now. But notice, that's the good news of the gospel for individuals. Is there good news from the gospel for nations? Ah, many Christians love this verse, but they don't think about what it means. The promise of life is not only for individuals, it's also for nations. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as heritage. Does God bless nations? Does God bless people groups? Does God bless lands? If they follow him, if they take him as their Lord, if they cut a covenant with him and take him as their Savior and then follow him as a nation, will he bless them? So many Christians will say that God has blessed our nation because of things very much like this. But then they will also say in the back end, yet religion needs to stay out of civil government. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. 
What are the consequences for keeping God's law? Leviticus 18, 24 to 30. So look at 18, 24 to 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Now, I skipped some verses. We'll look at those next week. So I'm hitting some high points here. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, the things from chapter, uh, verse 6 through 23. For all, by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. So you have to keep these laws lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Do what I say. Why? Because if you don't, I will do to you what I did to these other wicked nations. Notice this carefully. There are consequences for keeping God's law. Now listen, if your God determines the laws of your people, your land and your nation, then it would seem that only Israel needed to follow the laws of Yahweh. So you say, whoever your God is determines your laws, and that nation who has those laws from their God should follow them. And that means we should believe in pluralism, which means we have the God of the Muslims in, in Iran and Iraq, and we have the God of Israel in Great Britain and, and the United States of America, and we have the God, uh, we have Brahmin gods in, in, in India, and in a, right? And everybody just follows their God, their God determines their laws, and then everybody's happy. Every God gets their own little niche in the world, and as long as we kind of don't overlap too much, we'll be, all be good. Because Yahweh was not Egypt's God or Canaan's God, therefore, do those nations have to follow Yahweh's laws? It might sound like they don't, but not if you paid attention to what I just read. You might think that Yahweh would have no claim or authority over people who weren't in covenant with him, the people whom he had not redeemed, yet that isn't so. So you might think that because you are a Christian redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and in covenant with him as a child of the Father, that of course you must follow the law of God, but those unsaved people who have not been redeemed or not in covenant relationship with him don't have to. See how that works for peoples and for nations? But notice very, very carefully, that is not true. Yahweh has authority as creator. He created all things, therefore he has authority over all things. When did that start? Genesis 1.1. When will that end? When did God quit having authority over all people, all nations, all the world, all the earth, all the, everything? When did that end? It didn't. It never has. Therefore, all people are under his authority as creator. Yahweh is king of kings and lord of lords. All nations are under his authority, whether they recognize him or his authority. As the ruler of kings, every people, land, or nation are under Christ's authority now. That's Revelation 1, 4 through 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. Jesus Christ from heaven now is ruling over all the kings of the earth. If he rules over the kings, he rules over the nations that those kings rule over. Christ is king now and all nations are under his authority. Yet there are many rebel nations, are there not? 
In fact, most of the nations, if not the vast majority, if not almost every nation, is a rebel nation against Christ's authority. And our nation has become one of those nations. So the choice for every nation and every king is to submit or to rebel, to enter into covenant with him or rebel against him and bear the consequences. Notice what happened to the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. What did God do to the land of Canaan? God punishes the people, the land, the nation that does not keep his moral law. God punishes the people, the land, the nation that does not keep his moral law. That's what he said. Because this land, the land of Canaan, had become unclean, because of their abominations, the land had vomited them out. God had brought judgment in, in by bringing the people of Israel in. He judged those people and kicked them out. He judged them by his law, and he said what they did was an abomination and wicked. Don't do what they did, or the land will do to you what the land did to them. He judges nations, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Rome, Greece, all those ancient kingdoms, Moab, Edom, read the prophets. He judged them all according to his moral law. In their iniquity, in their dis disobedience to God's statutes and rules, the land inhabited by these people had become unclean. So God drove them out because of their disobedience to his moral law. So God's law is to be the law of the land and the nation and the law for everyone who lives there. God's law is to be the law of the land of Canaan, the promised land. God's law is to rule in that land and not just rule for the Israelites, the people in covenant with him, but for everyone who lives there. Notice how this works out. Verse 26, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you must keep these laws. So what if they're an Egyptian? What if they're a Canaanite? What if they follow the God of Islam or the God of Buddha or whatever? What, they have to keep these laws as well because the law is the law of the land. And you must keep my law because if you let people in who are going to do their own law and do their own thing, the land can then become unclean and be vomited out. You must have these laws for everyone. Notice letter C, most importantly, God judges every nation by the standard of his moral law. Currently, right now, in the past and in the present, since the beginning of time, God judges every nation by the standard of his moral law. Notice I'm emphasizing moral. The distinction of moral, ceremonial, and judicial is very important to understand what I'm saying. In Romans 2, 14 to 16 is a key passage for this. Some people say, well, the Gentiles are not in covenant with God. They don't have his law. What about people who never heard the Ten Commandments? What about those who never saw the Bible? Are they held to the same standard? How can God judge them? How can God send them to hell for disobedience when they never had a Bible or never heard the gospel? This is why. For when Gentiles, and Gentiles means everyone who's not a Jew. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, God's law of the Old Testament, God's moral law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, and even though they do not have the law written down, codified on tablets or on parchment or on paper, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And therefore, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse, excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, all men, all men and women by Christ Jesus. So what this is teaching is that the eternal moral law of God found in the Ten Commandments written down in Exodus 20 was placed on the heart of every single individual who was ever born, starting with Adam who was not born but created out of the dust. 
He had the moral law. He had the Ten Commandments imprinted on his heart. And therefore, when you go to places that have not heard the Bible, that have not heard the gospel, and they have laws against murder, laws against stealing, laws against lying, laws, all kinds of laws, where does the idea of those things being wrong or right come from? It comes from the heart of man, even people who had never heard the Bible or saw the Ten Commandments, their heart had the Ten Commandments on them. Therefore, their conscience, <laughs> their conscience is, is excusing or accusing them. Therefore, everyone is judged by this law. That's why God can judge Egypt and judge Canaan by his Ten Commandments, even though they had never read them, never had them written down. They had them on their heart the whole time. They should have been doing away with murder. They should have been doing away with fornication. They should have been doing away with homosexuality and adultery. They should have been doing away with stealing. They should have been following those things, but instead, they did wicked abominations. They turned evil for good and good for evil, and therefore, God judged them by his commandments Ten Commandments, the moral law. And God will do the same for every nation. And therefore, God will judge our nation for the violation of those things. And therefore, every person will be justly judged and sent to hell for disobeying the law of God written on their heart. There will be no excuse. This is the fact that God's moral law is found everywhere. Now, the question is, what do we do with the moral law's application for civil law? All right. We've turned the last corner. We're in the home stretch. Leviticus 19, 11 to 18. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, as it is explained and laid out in its punishments and penalties in the judicial law, What's the application for that law on civil law of any nation? That's the question. Because what happens when we decide to strike down immoral laws of a nation? What, what laws do we put in place? And on what foundation? We want the God, the only true God, Yahweh's law, to rule and reign in every nation because every nation should follow his laws because that's the blessing that God brings and that's where life is found. Now, many Christians believe that these specific laws are only for Israel and that they lost their authority with the end of the nation or the end of the Old Covenant. Some would go so far as to say that even the Ten Commandments were only for Israel and only the general principles repeated in the New Testament are for God's people today. Some of you were taught that most of your Christian life. You were taught that the Old Covenant law is Old Covenant only and that New Covenant law is any law that was found in the New Covenant, the New Testament. That now applies in principle. But you can't just take the law of God in the old and carry it over. Principles carried over, and Christ repeated them, and now we have the principles but no law. Grace over law. I could go in a long detail about some of this, but I don't have time. Now notice this, and pay attention to this. Without the moral law and its case law application found in the judicial law, people, groups, and nations are left with no true foundation for civil law. If you do away with the moral law of the Old Testament, and if you do away with the case law application of that moral law that's found in the judicial law, then there is no true foundation for civil law anywhere. There is a foundation because every law is built on a foundation, but there's no true foundation for any civil law anywhere. You've got to understand this. So Matthew Henry comes to Leviticus 19, and he says this, most of these precepts are binding on us, for they are expositions of most of the Ten Commandments. Amen, Matthew. I agree. 
They're binding because they're, the, the judicial law is an exposition of the, of the moral law. And if the moral law is binding, then the judicial application of that law should still be binding. That's where many Christians disagree. And most Christians don't want to go there because they don't like what it says. Well, I, there's a lot of things in Scripture I don't like but are true, and I have to live by them, right? So, notice this carefully. Let's start in verse 11. We'll read through this. You shall not steal. Does that sound familiar? You ever heard that before? Where'd that come from? You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That sound familiar? Sounds like something Christ might have said. But you shall, you know, where would he get that? Definitely not from Leviticus. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why should you do that? I am the Lord. Notice this. If you want to do away with the judicial law found in Leviticus, you will do away with this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, only God's law, only God's law, only the law of Yahweh found in the scriptures, specifically Leviticus, commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the only place that is found. I did a search. In what other law did something like this show up? It only showed up after Exodus 20. It only showed up after Israel. It shows up in other religions after Christianity. Hammurabi's code didn't have it. I checked. These other ancient laws did not have this principle. So therefore, when the Speaker of the House of the United States of America says, if you are to follow the law, to love your neighbor as yourself, you should do all these things, such as put a mask on, take a shot, get a COVID, whatever it is, based upon the law of love your neighbor as yourself, she doesn't realize what she's saying. She doesn't realize that when she takes Yahweh's law and applies it today, she's saying that Yahweh is her God. She said, well, no, Yahweh's not my God. We have, we have no God of our, of, of our nation. Then where did you get that law? You can't just take God's law, apply it in one situation, and do away with the God who gave it. To obey the law of a God is to have that God as your God. And if you say he's not a God, then what are you doing taking his laws? If he doesn't exist, if the God of the Old Covenant, if the God of the Old Testament is such a wicked, tyrannical, miserable God who destroys all things, why are you following his law? And why are you quoting his law to me as my reason for obeying your laws? Listen carefully. Without the judicial law of the Old Testament, we don't have that law. So when Christ says... The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God. He gets that from the moral commandment, the Ten Commandments, and love your neighbor as yourself, the judicial commandments, and they are a summary of all the Ten Commandments. He is saying that the law is for today, old and new covenant for God's people. So every person that claims this, and you will hear it everywhere, love your neighbor as yourself. And then they'll say, you'll say, well, what about what that God said? What else did he say about doing well, we just do that one. We like that one. That's it. No. 
If they claim this law is good, they must understand the implications. If this law is good, then God is good. The God who gave this law is good, and we should follow him in all his law. Now, notice also that it's only God's law, the law of Yahweh, that gives a right to personal property. Personal property. Did you notice? Did you see that? Did you see personal property here? You shall not steal. What's wrong with stealing? What's wrong with fraud? What's wrong with breaking your contracts? What's wrong with robbing an employee by not paying what you promised? What's wrong with taking advantage of people who can't protect themselves, the blind, the deaf, the poor? Did you see that in here? On what basis is there any principle of personal property ownership and not community ownership or ownership by the king, the one in power, or ownership by the planet? Now listen very carefully. The only reason stealing is wrong is because you can own things. And the only reason you can own things is because Yahweh said you can own things. God gave it to you. Yahweh said, this is yours. He gave you ownership of it. And he says if someone else takes it from it, that's a sin and that's wrong. It should be punished criminally. But no longer today, when you do away with the God of the Bible, you do away with personal property. And therefore, there is no stealing because it always belongs to, well, of course, the neighbor that you're supposed to love is yourself. Your property is his property. It's all community property, right? Or it's the king's property. He owns it all, and he just lets you have some of it for a little bit of time. Or it's the planet's property. Haven't you heard that one? If we're going to save the planet, we need to give people who are much smarter than us rulership over all the planet, and you can lease a little piece of land, and you can lease your car, and you can rent this, and you can rent that. We'll own the whole, because you can't own this. This is the earth. I mean, you can't own earth. And therefore, when they take it from you, when the government takes it from you, they take it all from you, that's not stealing. That's just ownership. Because apart from the God of the Bible and Yahweh, there is no personal property. There is no law to stand on. Are you following? This is where it comes from. So when you steal from your neighbor and they complain, just say, talk to the planet. It's all a free-for-all. It's all up for grabs, but nobody does that. The very same rulers of the planet who make these decrees, who try to live this way, do not agree with that because if you took what was theirs, it would be stealing, and they would quote to you the law of God and hold you to account. They will never be consistent, but it's only here. Notice what else. It's only God's law that gives an eternal standard for justice. Now, notice your notes don't have the word eternal because it said only God's law has, gives a standard for justice. But then I realized that every law has a standard for justice, and I wasn't accurate. Only God's law gives an, an eternal standard for justice. Every law has a standard for justice. And this, the justice of secular humanism and their laws is this. Whatever I say today is law. And whatever the punishment is today, that's the punishment. And if I change my mind tomorrow, guess what? Tough for you. And you can see that. Because in the 1950s, we, there were laws on the books, I believe, of almost every state in the United States of America that criminalized homosexuality. Look it up. And then by 2015, we did not just decriminalize it, which happened in the 1970s for the most part. We legalized it as good. They just get to do that? Yes, they do. And so when you say a man is this and a woman is this and marriage is this or this is that and they just change it tomorrow, 
When a president says in 2008 that homosexual marriage is wrong, and then in 2015 says it's right, and we, t- we take it from being just not criminalized to being a benefit. Notice what happens. If you think it won't happen to something else tomorrow, it will. It's coming for all of it. Because they have no eternal standard for justice. It's only God's law. Without God and his law word, there's no unchanging, stable, certain, and absolute standard for justice. You cannot define injustice without a definition of justice. And if justice can be constantly changed according to the whims of people, any people, then all you are left with is who is in charge of the definitions, who's in charge of the law, and who has the power to enforce both. They will not just kick you off of Facebook. They'll not just kick you off of YouTube or Parler or whatever it is. They won't just take away your rights on on the public square there. They will come for all of it based upon their changing whims, their changing laws with no foundation. And the only thing that most Christians have in place is to go back to some sort of law code of, of, of ancient USA to try to say we should go back to that. And what happened is the foundations were not enough and the framework was not enough and the religion was not enough so that we got here from that place. We can't just go back to that place and hope that the second go-round will end up in a better place. That's what most conservative Christians think. So that's what I'm trying to scream loud enough you understand. (laughs) It's not enough. So you cannot define injustice without God's law as a standard for justice. The understanding that justice is blind and that every person is to be held by the same standard of law, whether poor or great, is from God's law. Right here, you shall do no partiality to the poor or defer to the great. Why not? I am the Lord. That's why. Why can't we benefit the rich or why can't we benefit the poor? Every time man keeps trying to sway the scales and balance the scales, we're trying to make reparations for the past and swing at things to try to even it all out, all they have to do is follow God's law. Nobody gets special treatment before the law. Where does that come from? The Lord, Yahweh. And without it, it will always be unjust because it's always who's the judge and who's the person with the gun, who's the person with the power. There's no foundation So, if we don't understand that we have to go to the law of the Old Testament for the moral code as well as the judicial code, we will do no better than we did last time. And we'll end up in the same place, and we won't understand the applications. Now, what that means is it demands of us a far, far, far better understanding of the Old Testament than most of us could ever hope to in the rest of our lives. So you better get on it, and you better understand it. And you better read Leviticus 18 and 20 differently and think, how would that apply today? What is a general use, a general equity use of the law in judicial application? And therefore, we have to be able to say things like homosexuality should be criminalized. And there should be judicial punishment. And abortion should be criminalized. And murder should be dealt with by the death penalty. And we have to understand these things according to Scripture. You think the scripture didn't anticipate this? Read the sexual law code of Genesis of Leviticus 18 to 20 and find out that the idea is Leviticus was already facing things that we weren't facing but are facing now, and we're dealing with them already. The law is there, and the punishments are there, and the penalties are there, and where else are we going to go for that? And when we say that the penalties and punishments of the law of God are too strict, who are we judging? Yahweh said, do this. 
He said, do this, don't do this, and if you do what I told you not to do, here's a penalty. And we say, well, we couldn't do that. That would be too harsh. Is Yahweh too harsh? Is Yahweh unjust? Is the law code of ancient Israel wicked? Not to be followed, not to be obeyed? Think about how many Christians would imply that by their answer to those questions. Think about possibly how you might have implied that by the answer and the way you've thought over years, maybe decades. This is not easy, and I don't have all the answers. But we have to take up the challenge, or we'll have nothing to pass on. If God's judgment is here on this nation because we have rebelled against him, and like the Egyptians and like the Canaanites, we have committed enough abominations where he's going to vomit us out of the land. Well, if any of our kids, grandkids, great-grandkids survive for the next civilization, then what are they going to build? And on what basis and what foundation? So let me finish this way. In conclusion, if you're not a believer in Christ, you don't have the life of Christ, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Trusting him to save you from your sins. In obedience to him, you will have life. That's the promise. Confess Christ as Lord. Trust him to save you from your sins. And in obedience to him, you will have life. And Christians, recognize that God's universal moral law is the only righteous foundation for the civil laws of any nation. If we can agree to that, we have a starting point. If we can't agree to that, we have no starting point. We have no eternal foundation. We have no foundation for any of this. And it's just going to be the law of the people rule, the law of the powerful rule, the law of the mighty rule, whatever it is, we'll be in the same place. If you have questions, comments, feedback, there's a little box. In, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll be sticking around here for a while, and we can talk, come back tonight, talk to me individually, talk to me personally, set up a time, wrestle, study, read ahead. We'll be going back into Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 next week and the week after. So spend time in the scripture. Let's pray. Father, it's only by your grace, only by your spirit, that not only do we understand these things, but we can apply the truth of these things. And Lord, we'd rather not do the work. We'd rather not. We'd rather just live our quiet, simple lives apart from all the mess. But Lord, you know, and, and we're already saying that the mess is, is intruding. It's intruding on our families. It's intruding on our church. It's coming for us. And the fact that we stayed out of it for so long has only handicapped us for what we're facing today. So, Lord, may we do the right thing by getting in the battle the right way, understanding all of these things in a way that would please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.